It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Egg Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming back macro investor Diego Perella, the best-selling author of The Energy World is Flat and The Anti-Bubbles. In his day-to-day, he's both managing partner and portfolio manager at Quadriga Asset Managers, which focuses on global macro volatility and tail risk. Earlier in his career, he was managing risk with global teams in prestigious investment banks such as JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Merrill Lynch. We discuss the new paradigm of high inflation, high volatility, and high risk, where we go over what the new world might look like with persistently higher inflation. And we also talk about how to embrace volatility rather than fight it with active rebalancing and insurance. This interview was recorded just prior to the Fed Fund's announcement on the 14th of December. Enjoy. Hey, Diego. Great to have you on the show again. How are you doing today? Thank you, Ed. Great to be here. Um, There's obviously a lot going on at the moment, a huge amount of interconnected things playing out in the global economy, such as high inflation, strong dollar, hawkish Fed, slowdown in China, social unrest. I mean, the the list just goes on and on. Um, And also, obviously, this has been recorded just before the Fed event later today, which is I know a lot of people have got their eyes on. Uh, to get some idea of what might be happening in the future. And you recently put out uh, an article about the new paradigm of high inflation, high volatility, and high risk, which uh, I have to say was a fantastic article. It was one of the best I've, I've read in a long time. So it takes a while to get through it, but I really recommend uh, people go and uh, read that for themselves because I think people learn, can learn a lot from it. Um, yeah, I thought we could start just by you know, giving us an overview of your theory on the new paradigm. Uh, including sort of your outlook on how it's going to play out over the next few years. Well, thank you for your kind uh, feedback, Ed. And uh, yeah, I think it's important to take a a big picture. Um, And I think, you know, in some ways what we've seen um, over the last decades, uh, it's in some ways uh, this idea that that when we have a problem, you can actually solve it by just printing money and and, uh, taking more debt. Uh, basically the idea that monetary and fiscal policies uh, can uh, solve problems. I would argue, and I've always argued that that's not the case. Uh, You're not really solving any problems. What you're doing is a combination of four things. The first one is you're kicking the can down the road. So you're spending and borrowing at the expense of, in some ways, future generations. Um, the second thing that we're doing is we are transferring the, uh, the problem. So what we see is uh, how we are effectively through currency wars and trade wars, we're trying to, to pass the problem to, to our neighbor. And so trade wars in that sense have dominated global macro for a long time, uh, more as a beggar than neighbor, where you're really uh, trying to basically get people's money and investment and technology and employment at the expense of maybe having, you know, currencies that are artificially weak. 
Uh, that comes at the at the cost of inflation, which hasn't been a, a huge problem, and things have turned around. So I think this current wave of currency wars is is mostly about exporting inflation, and why I think the dollar will likely you know turn around again and and, and remain very strong. And I think this leads to to the the, uh, the trade wars, you know, where as you're trying to uh, defend yourselves in so in some ways, it also leads to this dynamic of you know protectionism. Uh, through tariffs and other dynamics, which actually hurt uh, badly the people that abuse monetary and fiscal. So the, the the third thing that that's been happening is we have been transforming the problem. So you know we have effectively done a couple of things. One of them, and the big one, is inflation. And it should be you know you don't need to be a genius to realize that if you're printing trillions and trillions and trillions of paper, then that paper is worth less and less and less, is diluting the monetary base. Uh, and the issue with inflation and, and what it means for basically asset valuations uh, and other things is, is inequality. So you're, you're in a situation where, unfortunately, over the medium long term, we're already starting to see issues which are going to likely to continue. You know, we're seeing strikes. If you go to the UK, like I am <laughs> going tonight, you have a uh, you know, all sorts of strikes in, uh, in the railway and everything else. And this is obvious. I mean, I, I, can, I can tell you anecdotically, I was in, uh, in New York last week, you know, stepped out of a conference, had a, a coffee and a croissant, which was uh, literally $18. And then I went on uh, uh, US dollars, right? <laughs> yeah. And I went down, I went down on, a, on a cab, you know, down to Wall Street for, I don't know, 25 minutes. And that was uh, fifteen dollars, and and so it shows you that whoever is able to increase prices is increasing them, and, and the guys that are stuck with their the tariffs are not. So it's no surprise that people will be striking as they're effectively caught by by inflation. So I think this inequality, these issues that it creates, you know, strikes is in some ways the least of the problem. You have you know uh, social unrest, you have uh, you know much bigger worries, including war. And so those are all things to be expected when you abuse monetary and fiscal and you, you basically create this inflation. And, and then the, the fourth thing, you know, beyond uh, kicking the can down the road, uh, transferring and transforming the problem is uh, you're unfortunately enlarging the problem. So you end up in a situation, which is where we're now, where, you know, you've created, in my view, bubbles that are systemic, that are too big to fail. And this basically brings us to a situation where, you know, all dynamics have played out these fallacies that uh, you can solve problems by printing and debt are starting to show in ways that create uh, major, major problems. And so I think inflation is the key ahead. Uh, the market's debating, you know, the ability for central banks to actually manage to, to contain it. Um, I think it's, uh, inflation is going to remain structurally high uh, for the foreseeable future. And if you really try to uh, attack inflation in a, in a proper way, you're effectively going to expose the, the bubbles and destroy growth, which brings you into uh, arguably an equal or, or worse problem, which will invariably lead to more printing. So we're kind of caught in this dimension, in this problem between inflation and bubbles. And I think in this scenario, you know, it's very useful to understand you know, a new acronym, the new game in town, which is uh, a bit early. Some people may have not even heard about it, but trust me, I believe it's, it's going to be key, which is called uh, YCC, yield curve control. 
And so to put things in perspective for uh, the audience, you know, everybody by now should be familiar with uh, QE, right? Uh, quantitative easing. Yeah. And so QE was sort of simple to understand. Uh, hello, Mr. Powell, here's 120 billion a month, go and spend it, right? And he literally took that money and bought whatever he could. You know, he bought uh, treasuries, he bought mortgages, he bought everything. What that did is it created a level of interest rates that was artificially low, created a level of valuations which was artificially high, and it created a level of volatility that was artificially low through complacency. And so in some ways, I would argue that QE uh, inflates the bubbles, right? Once the bubbles are there and you start to see uh, some of the byproducts uh, that, that we uh, discussed earlier, such as inflation, then you go into the new phase. And what's the new phase? In new phase, we have a bit of a problem. Take Japan as a, as a case study, but this is really a global problem. You have built insane amount of debt, you know, multiples of, of your GDP, based on the view that interest rates will remain at zero forever, based on the view that inflation is going to stay low forever, and based on the view that your uh, investors, the people that are lending you the money, are completely stupid and, and captive, right? So... Think about the 10-year Japanese government bond, the JGB, paying 25 basis points. Why? Because I say so. <laughs> it's not a fair reflection of where the risk is or the compensation they should be getting. It's purely a fact that the government, the central bank said, 10-year JGBs play 25 bips and that's it or kind of leave it. So that uh, dynamic is uh, basically quite tricky, quite, quite dangerous. And ultimately, investors are a bit fed up. They start to, to flock. And as they do that, the, the yields you know, start to go up. And so what happens is yield curve control is this new phase whereby central banks are going to basically have to trade off. You know, either they respond to this problem and they step in and, and support the, the market because uh, at some point, who in the right mind is going to lend money to Japan for for 10 years at 25 basis points with high inflation, currency devaluation, etc. So as we frogs jump out of this boiling water, someone needs to step in and that someone is Gilker control, is, is, the, is the government. And as they do that, as a central bank, as they do that, effectively it reinforces this uh, problem, this spiral of uh, money printing, which effectively reinforces the, the negative cycle. Because uh, if you want to avoid uh, a credit blow up, by interest rates, imagine you know interest rates going to three, four, five, whatever seven percent in Japan. What it means for the government and their ability to finance themselves to be literally bankrupt. And so, as they cannot do that uh, because you need to keep uh, yields uh, low, then um, basically the only way to do that is by by printing money, lending it to the government through yield curve control, which means you're creating ever more inflation and, and, and devaluation. So, in summary, QE built the bubbles. Yield curve control will be needed to prevent those bubbles from imploding. And uh, ultimately, what we're doing is, once again, we're not solving problems. We're going to need, uh, basically, uh, we're transforming a credit problem into a, an inflation problem. And how, how long can this new paradigm persist if it's, if it's just, if it's not properly solving it? Is it going to result in some cataclysmic sort of end? Well, I think what's happening is uh, for a long time, we used to talk about the Japanification of the world. You know, you're talking about basically uh, zombies, right? The world becoming a bit of a zombie. And uh, I think in, in some ways, what I think it's really happening 
is the Argentinification of the world. So if you know if you have abused monetary and fiscal policies, uh, I'm sorry, mate, but you're going to pay for it. And and so in some ways, countries like uh, you know Spain or Japan or many other parts in the world, you know, poor Spain, <laughs> my country, but Italy or many others. And you can you can take a look at the list, and it's a, it's a long one. Uh, basically, if you've abused uh, monetary and fiscal policies, you might be paying back. So what happened to Argentina? It's happened to Zimbabwe or Venezuela or others, which is the abuse of monetary and fiscal. Eventually, pays out through the exchange rate, and that exchange rate uh, means is bad news because it means inflation, and it sort of feeds on itself. It's very difficult to stop it. So. I think if you push this to the limit in a world where governments have accumulated too much debt, relying on, on money printing and other ways to, um, to keep the, the things going, as investors start to worry about inflation and jump off, you know, and the government is forced to intervene, that creates this negative cycle. And that's in a way what we saw in, in Japan earlier this year and what you, we could see happening in Europe if and when uh, Europe is basically tapping into yield curve control, which is, by the way, already in place through uh, the anti-fragmentation tool, which was introduced over the summer. So that, I think, was very interesting because the, the European Central Bank, having spent you know, a long time, you know, I think quite almost, not quite a decade, but you know, uh, many, many years uh, at negative nominal uh, yields, you, you, you basically finally decide to bring rate to zero. That was creating panic, which was <laughs> kind of... Um, ironic in a way, you know, that the, the world is, is, is concerned because we're bringing interest rates to zero. That's how crazy things were. And you have the central bank proactively trying to take measures to say, look, I cannot let this thing blow up. Let's introduce this mechanism. So the fact that it's there, it hasn't been tapped yet, but a uh, yield curve control has been in place for, for a long time in Japan. It, it, it took, you know, five, seven years for it to be actually tapped. But when it did, it shows you this negative spiral. And I think Europe, should the situation get worse and, you know, maybe yields in Italy or Spain go, you know, above 5%, I think you would likely see, um, even before, the ECB having to step in once again, trying to convert uh, one problem into another, in this case, a credit problem into what will be effectively a devaluation and, and inflation. So how far can it go? We'll see. But I think it's the, the new dynamic of you know this new phase of global macro, which, as you pointed out, Ed, at the beginning, I think it's you know consistent with my view that we're in a new paradigm shift yeah. or a new paradigm driven by by high volatility, high inflation, and high risk. So you'll see hyperinflation potentially in, in different countries at varying levels, depending on how they've sort of approached QE over their lifetime. Yeah, I think uh, if you've abused monetary and fiscal, you're going to have to pay back. Yeah. And this is a domino effect. So probably the, the, the guys that abuse the most will go first. And, uh, and I think, you know, uh, it's something that will likely lead in the end to stagflation. So the, how, how far and how hyper time will tell, but the idea that, you know, we got inflation under control, it's, I think, a bit naive. Uh, but I, I, I agree 100%, and this is the challenge with inflation. You know, we have effectively forces in both directions. I would argue that 
obviously hiking interest rates puts pressure on, on real estate, it puts pressure on construction, it puts pressure on economic activity, it puts pressure on valuations, it, it removes wealth effect. There's all these things that the Fed is trying to do through basically higher interest rates, which are in some ways deflationary, right? So you would think, oh my God, the happy days, the Fed is going to, to succeed. The problem is that the kind of interest rate rises that you need to get things under control in a more stable way, it will it are already exposing you know, risk in the system. Look at what happened in the UK, look at what's been happening recently in, in, other, in other angles. And so the key question here is to what extent can we hike rates to the point that they tame inflation down without creating any, any bigger damage? And I must say, you know, it's actually been so far so good. I mean, you, you have a, <laughs> a meaningful and very aggressive hike, a set of hikes that hasn't, uh, you know, has created some, some sell-off, but S&P still, as we speak, uh, above 4,000. And so, you know, if, if you look ahead yeah. into what might be needed, what's happening, I, I personally think the, the risk is skewed towards, you know, more volatility, more downside. Um, and more inflation uh, again with inflation being the uh, uh, response to deflation in some ways so what you need to do to prevent the credit bubbles from imploding the printing you need to do to keep things going and uh, and so you have these forces in both directions that will ultimately result in volatility and and why i think the, you know there's no crystal ball but this is a, a volatile environment where you must embrace volatility, you cannot fight it. You have to embrace volatility and I think be ready for perhaps, you know, inflation that will be much stickier and higher than, than I think the market is, is complacently uh, predicting. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, I think it's fair, fair to say a lot of market participants are sort of expecting a, a Fed pivot at some point. So, you know, QE again. Um, and are we saying that potentially, you know, that would, initially be looked upon favorably, but then these sort of more systematic uh, problems of, of high inflation as they play out would eventually impact negatively again. Um, do you think that's fair? Or? Yeah, sure. I, I guess the, let's differentiate between pivot and, and QE. I mean, ultimately, the Fed has realized, you know, uh, it's ironic that not, not even, I think, almost a year ago, you know, or not, not uh, that long ago, Fed was not even, you know, Powell was not even thinking about thinking about hiking rates, right? Arguing that inflation was temporary and, and all, that, all that stuff. Um, obviously, reality has turned out to be quite different. And they've actually been hiking at what is called the jumbo hikes. You know, monetary policy was not really dis designed to do, you know, 75 bit hikes is more, you know, a, a more gradual, slow process, you know, but uh, uh, I think those, those huge hikes show you, you know, how determined or, you know, against they were certainly late to the party. They were very complacent, arguably even, uh, you know, negligent, in my opinion, with uh, what they've done. And so they hiked super aggressively to try to gain some room to, to ease uh, later on. And I think what the market is trying to calibrate is, you know, what is that terminal rate? What is that ultimate level where the economy will find sort of the right balance between, you know, hiking rates and slowing things down 
without really crashing, right? Or if the crash is, let's just make it moderate. But I think when it comes down to, you know, uh, the printing machine, again, from a QE perspective, just open the tabs. I think that, um, you know, it's, it's something that is, is there that the market can expect. But I suspect that the, you know, it, it will come, as I said, in the form of uh, opioid curve control as a, as a defense mechanism that will try to contain the avalanche of, of things happening. And so far, you know, touch wood, again, we haven't seen any major credit events. Equity markets, for the most part, are holding okay. There's been obviously a huge um, sell-off in, in things that were excessively high. But, you know, this is, this is um, a situation where even in the last few weeks, you know, with the inflation prints being marginally below, we're talking about, you know, uh, 0.1, 0.2%. Uh, the market is already reading the second derivative. Like, okay, this is it. Uh, I told you, you know, inflation is going back. Everything's under control. We don't need to hike that much. And I think the market gets to carry the way in both directions very often, very hurdy. And I think we're going to see in the in the next uh, few hours, you know, what the Fed is thinking. But certainly, the the rally in equity markets and what it means for uh, financial conditions is not is not good news for the Fed. I mean, they really, you know, want things to get a little, bit, a little bit tighter. They want people to feel a little bit of pain so that we can, uh, in some ways, slow down inflation yeah. uh, across the board, and in particular, wage inflation. And, and I think this is something that, you know, uh, going into this meeting and, and having removed uh, forward guidance, uh, you know, the markets have become so much more volatile into every meeting because it's, it's sort of a setting the new the new direction for the boat uh with marginal changes so i think powell's been very steady in his message he's been very serious in his words in the last few months he seems determined to to keep hiking to address inflation and uh, no matter what he says the market keeps on taking a (laughs) a quite complacent view about you know you know bluffing or calling the bluff in some ways that they, they they will not be able to deliver and and, and expecting those that reversal. So if you look at the market today, the terminal rate, it's, well, the actual end of the second cycle is somewhere around May 2023, uh, shy of 5%. But as you go further out, the market is already discounting cuts, uh, you know, with a, with a 30-year rate around, you know, three and a half on the, on the treasury. So there is uh, that inverted curve that it's associated with the view that the market doesn't really trust or believe that those hikes are sustainable and they will have to cut eventually, you know, how much will they need to print if and what, I think it's something that the market is not that focused on, but in some ways they know that if, if needed, they, they will, they will do it. And do you think they've gone too far in expecting that? One of the things people are talking about is, uh, I believe is, you know, how much further can they go with rates if they get to levels they're unable to service their sort of debt? They'll be forced, you know, they're in a tight place where they can't go too far. Well, that's right. I think um, that, that's, that's a problem, right? You, you, uh, you take advantage of zero interest rates to take uh, infinite debt, and then turns out that as rates go up, you can't afford it. So it's as simple as that. The, the market is somewhat divided also with respect to, you know, uh, and I, I myself uh, have been uh, somewhat surprised that we've been able to hike so much so quickly without 
uh, a bigger impact. But we need to understand as well that there is a, a delayed effect. So, for example, if your mortgage is reset annually, uh, you're in uh, and you're floating and you're setting in January, you're, you're in for a very big surprise. So I think in that sense, you can think about nuclear radiation, right? You're in Chernobyl playing a football game and thinking, what was all the fuss about, you know, and you play your match. And unfortunately, you know, if you spend too long there, then uh, the damage is done, right? So you will, you will find yourself in a, in a terrible situation. But uh, it, it, without getting so dramatic, just think about uh, sun radiation, you know, who hasn't been on the beach for a day and without any sun cream and then only to be at night, you know, feeling the, the impact. So I think we need to be a little bit careful with the lags and the delays. In some ways, the Fed is pushing really hard uh, with the radiation. <laughs> and to what extent are we feeling it with a delayed effect? We'll see. But bear in mind that what, what the Fed does in the US is not only impacting, you know, US players. There are plenty of other ways by which dollar interest rates are impacting the world, you know, notwithstanding the amount of dollar debt held by by non-dollar countries which creates a huge asset liability because not only you need to pay more interest on on your dollar debt and back in your local currency you're having to to repay a lot more and so this double whammy exposes you know em and sort of the weaker guys that guess what they borrow the us dollars because nobody would lend them in the, in their own currency but the fact that they they lend or, or they they borrowed in, in, in dollars, the, the lenders shouldn't be naive. And there is a lot of currency risk because, you know, at the end of the day, the ability to repay back in dollars is, is much more limited than if you're uh, printing in your own currency. So this is all back to the point I was making earlier. It's all interlinked. Uh, it's all, unfortunately, part of, um, they're no longer equilibriums. We're talking about processes that accelerate and feed on themselves. And this is in some ways why when you think about inflation, and it's two components, you know, one is just inflation itself, two plus two equals four. But, but the second one is inflation expectations that feed on themselves. This is something that worries the, the central banks a lot and why they need to be preemptive and proactive. The question is, you know, uh, we, we will see over the next uh, few, few months how this plays out. But I suspect that, you know, there is, uh, as I said earlier, significant volatility ahead and uh, not healthy inflation because even the deflationary pressures that might be welcome might be coming from an economy that is massively deteriorating and which is something that's already evident so it's i think a period to be somewhat uh, cautious and, and be careful not get carried away one way or another by by the market but uh it's it's a difficult uh, setup and you know, this is, we need to remember these problems have been accumulated for, for decades. So, you know, it's, uh, that's why, you know, a number of people will, will define them as, as super, super bubbles, right? They are, they're like super cyclical bubbles. It's almost like, you know, 2001 to the power of 2008 and to the, you know, uh, with, with other, other components on top. So it's a, it's a very fascinating time from a macro perspective. And I want to emphasize the fact that I think we're in a new paradigm that will look very different to the, to the previous one. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. And can you take us through this uh, frogs in boiling water analogy? You, you, you touched on it 
slightly earlier, but I think it's quite interesting. So it'd be nice to hear it from yourself. Sure. So I think it's, I talked about this in, in my book, right in 2017, describing the dynamics of, of inflation. And I would argue that we're all frogs in this monetary broth, right? That whereby the, the temperature is officially rising at 2% per annum. So the first point I'd make is 2% is not a random number. It's been scientifically calculated so that uh, as frogs don't jump, so 2% is small enough that you will stay in the water, but at the same time it's high enough that if you compound 2% over 10, 20, 30 years, you will effectively boil to death, right? Uh, the second point I would make is the real inflation has nothing to do with official inflation. And unfortunately, it's, it's significantly higher. And I would argue as a rule of thumb that real inflation is at least twice. Um, the third point is, you know, once, you, once inflation accelerates, and we're no longer talking about two official or whatever is real, we're talking about five, seven, ten higher, the compounding effect becomes, you know, pretty exponential, right? It's geometric. So you have this um, acceleration where the dilution is, is very fast and where frogs are getting boiled to, to death. And I think, why did the frog jump? Why did you and I jump? Why do we get out? You know, what, what's plan B? Well, clearly, you know, when your cash is, is burning in your hands, you know, if you're in Argentina or some of these countries, as the money goes in, they, they buy stuff, right? Immediately, you don't, you don't sit on cash. But think about fixed income as well, right? Or credit, where your $100 or 100 euros will, that I'm going to give you back in 10, 20, 30 years, I would argue are going to buy you very, very little, okay? If, if any. So as inflation becomes higher, some of us frogs will, will jump. And as we jump, uh, we go back to the problem I described earlier, you know, yields go up and, and then the, the government sees the frogs jumping and the water boiling and, and so they need to do something, right? They need to, to act. And unfortunately, and the bad news is those investors that are de facto uh, benchmarked, you know, people that are saying, look, my board of directors decided that I should have by decree, you know, 60% in fixed income or 40 or 80 or whatever it is. I think these are frogs that are in the analogy, uh, handcuffed to the bowl. They're, they're literally handcuffed. They are not able to jump, even if they can see the boiling coming. And they are the ones, unfortunately, that will pay for the party. I mean, this, this party that we've had over the last few few years will transform itself uh, as i said earlier from from credit problems into inflation and i think those investors that are sitting on cash or credit or fixed income you know need to think twice about what's happening in terms of their their purchase power and their returns and this is what i link normally to this you know the idea that if investing was a, a video game you would have three levels Right. Level one is, uh, you know, high ed, here's a hundred dollars and give me back a hundred and two or a hundred and three. Right. Uh, this is, uh, you're playing this game in to make money in nominal terms. Right. And I was in a, in a conference I was presenting alongside, uh, Jeremy Grantham. Uh, and it was fascinating. Uh, he said, look, for 20 years that I've, you know, 
in, in writing my, my newsletter, not once I used the word inflation. And that gives you a sense of what level one was about. You know, you were about, it was negligible. It was completely not in people's radar whatsoever. Now, I think we are now decisively in level two, which means, hey, Ed, thank you for making me 2% in nominal, but unfortunately, inflation is 10 or higher. Effectively, I lost money. And so once you change your mindset into level two, and you start thinking about returns in, in real terms, i.e. not just protecting your capital, but protecting your purchase power, then uh, it's, a, it's a very meaningful change because asset classes that were effectively winners in level one, such as fixed income or credit, find themselves being potentially big losers in, in level two. And um, I mentioned level three, take a guess, but <laughs> this is the way in which uh, governments basically square the circle which is you should brace yourself or, or try to make money in real terms after taxes. And I think taxes, particularly wealth taxes, are certainly on the way up. And it's the way by which governments actually square the circle because, you know, we have a problem. We try to print and borrow our way out of the problem that creates inflation, which creates asset bubbles and inequality. And then I'm going to basically tax those bubbles and effectively try to respond to the inequality in a way that, you know, they try to close the circle. And so the, the governments are always with this first mover advantage of, you know, trying to print as much as they can or try to boil the water as much as they can without the, uh, the, the frogs noticing. But I think, you know, there might be forces in the system, you know, technology, maybe they put aircon, maybe they do things that it looks like, you know, the temperature is more stable. But the fact is that the water has been boiled at a very strong pace. And, and when these things disappear, it becomes very obvious. And, and once uh, inflation expectations become very high, you know, the acceleration of frogs jumping increases, which effectively leads to a vicious cycle. So this, this analogy, I think it's simple enough for people to, to grasp you know, the, the, the end game and, and what they're trying to achieve and how... Again, inflation is, is some sort of tax that is being imposed on, on, uh, on, on people that hold cash or, uh, or fixed income or credit in the form of uh, dilution and loss of, of uh, purchase power. That's great. Man. Thanks, Diego. Really, it's, uh, it brings it to life when you sort of make it into a story <laughs> with the analogies. It's great. I also wanted to touch on one of your, your, one of your funds is, I mean, you talk about in this recent article, has done particularly well during this period. Or recent period, and you utilized cross asset insurance and long only options to, to create those high returns during crises. And I thought you could take us through how you've done that because it's really sort of quite very interesting to, to see how you, you've constructed something that's been able to achieve great returns in, in this, this difficult environment. Well, look, uh, thank you. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I use the analogy that a portfolio is, is like a team, like a football team, right? And, and what I mean by this is, you know, you need strikers, you know, you need things that will make you money in terms of income and dividend and, and capital gains. You perhaps also want things that are more midfielders, you know, they're less directional, they, they you know, control the ball, they, they defend, they get the ball back. But you also need defenders and you also need uh, goalkeepers, right? And so the idea is that you... Um, you know, defending is a very basic 
uh, <laughs> part of the game, right? Uh, in order to win, you have to score goals, but you also have to defend. And I think in some ways, uh, we have seen, partially because of the dynamics that we discussed earlier, we saw a lot of people playing with 11 strikers, right? You, you didn't really need a defender or a goalkeeper because mommy and daddy were there, you know, covering your back, you know, by money printing and central bank puts. Uh, the reality is uh, this is uh, going to be a very volatile match, you know, and I don't have a crystal ball with respect to uh, where the ball is going to go. All I know is that, you know, if the ball is up, you need strikers, if it's in the middle or defense, and it's that uh, ability to pass the ball. So I'm saying this because, you know, we are, or we like to position ourselves as a, a defender or the goalkeeper of the team. So as a goalkeeper, you know, you, you have the gloves, you need to sit uh, somewhere at the back and you need to be ready to do the saves, right? And sometimes the team might, might need you, sometimes they, they don't. I mean, uh, we're now in the, in the World Cup uh, and we've seen the huge uh, relevance of, of, uh, of a goalkeeper, right? Whether it's on the penalty shootouts or, or just generally doing that, that save that is the difference between elimination and, and passing through. So ultimately, when you define yourself as a goalkeeper, uh, you understand what uh, role you play in the team and therefore you need to adjust your, your tools and, and the way you do it. In our particular case, our philosophy, investment philosophy is, is primarily focused on, on options, uh, which is insurance. And uh, what we do is we have a very unique approach, which is uh, we only buy options. And we do this because from a risk management perspective, um, we have with 100% certainty, we know that the absolute worst case scenario is that we lose our premium. So if you buy, spend a million dollars in, in S&P puts, then you know with 100% certainty you can you can only lose that million dollars in, in S&P puts. You cannot lose more than that. Unlike uh, other type of insurance that might be more linear in nature, like uh, you know people shorting assets, that if you short the S&P and the market's up 10%, you lose 10. If the market's up 50, you lose 50. If the market's up 500, you lose 500, right? So uh, I think we need to be very careful with um, uh, strategies that have open-ended risk because no matter how convicted you are about the future uh nobody really knows what's going to happen and i think insurance it's it's very powerful so in that sense uh, that makes us very unique because there's just too many people on the street that uh, uh, don't want to pay for premium and they end up um, paying <laughs> with, with in other ways you know through through huge blow-ups because they they have uh, they have not been able to understand or control the risk particularly during during crisis so this is uh, as i always say you know you're not as good as your last trade you you're as good as your last crisis and so options are critically important we have the self-imposed risk limit of, of just buying options then the question is you know what do you buy how do you size it when do you exit etc and as you pointed out we believe that you know even the goalkeeper in itself needs to be diversified so we don't have a crystal ball on whether the next crisis is going to be a nuclear event in Russia or it's going to be a credit event in, uh, in China or it's going to be, you know, a pr structured product blow up or it's going to be, you know, a massive recession or it's going to be an inflation print. We don't, we don't really know uh, ex ante, but we know that 
the candidates. And, and so we understand the relative value around these pieces. And so part of the work that we do is, you know, from a fundamental macro perspective, try to find the, uh, the best use of our premium, right? So we have a limited amount of money that we can spend in premium, and we're going to try to use that in, in a way that gives us uh, a diversification in all dimensions. The first one is, you know, we're going to be buying uh, put options uh, on risk assets. So we buy puts on equity, credit, high yield, DM, or even commodities. But the second thing you could do is you could buy call options on, on anti-bubbles or defensive assets. You could buy calls on the VIX or the dollar or treasuries or inflation or gold or whatever. And so in that sense, this healthy competition between them ensures that you, know, you, you want to, to have uh, the crisis are a bit like, like pieces of domino falling. You don't know exactly where it's going to go, but they're all, they're all related. The, the second thing you want to do is you want to, uh, the big problem with options is obviously uh, time, right? So if you buy a one-year option and then the crisis happens in three days, <laughs> you're like, oh my God, I was so unlucky. You know, I was covered for one year. And I guess this has happened to people with your car insurance. You know, it's, it's the most likely day that you get the accident. Unfortunately, it's the day the insurance expired or the day after. So in that sense, you want to be in a situation where you have a different investment horizon, right? You have short-dated options, you have medium-term, you have longer-term, and they will protect you against different things. Some of them are more explosive or more directional. Some others are going to be, you know, uh, more medium-term, and some others are going to be based on rate moves and vega moves and things that are much more long-dated. And then you want to do it also in a way, and this is probably what makes us most uh, differentiated, which is, you know, understanding risk premium. And, and risk premium, unfortunately, is uh, when you're a goalkeeper, it tends to be negative because, you know, I want to sleep at night. Uh, you know, you as an investor want to sleep at night. Somebody else is going to be taking care of these, these things. And generally, there's a cost. If you're buying the VIX, you know, you might be paying high level of vol, contango in the futures, high vol of vol, and, and high skewness, which means that by the time you bought your out-of-the-money call on, on the VIX, you ended up paying so many layers of risk premium that it really becomes very difficult for, for it to, to make money in the long term. You know, you're bleeding and, and not getting the right uh, compensation. So what you need to do is understand risk premia and in some ways flip risk premia back into your favor. And so uh, whether that means through vanilla options, which are uh, the best thing in the world because they're simple to understand and predictable, you may also want to take advantage of things like skewness by introducing more exotic payoffs such as, you know, American, European, or volatility targets, uh, which are a lot of fun as, as uh, financial products. They allow you to, to, like Lego pieces, to construct insurance that, that uh, fits, you know, and takes advantage of what's cheap and what's expensive. And even a correlation or hybrid place where you might be combining two views into one. So, uh, for example, earlier this year, as the war was starting, we had the view that, you know, that was going to be negative for the euro and it was going to be negative for European equities. Uh, the market held a, a view that uh, normally if uh, they're negatively correlated. So if the euro is down, that's good news for, for equities and vice versa. So taking a contrarian view that both would go down massively increased the odds. I'll give you a simple example. So you're betting on euro down 2% at 40% chance 
you're betting on euro stocks down at, at 40% chances. That means $4 million of premium will pay you six, uh, roughly. So it's not a very attractive trade-off. But if the two events were uncorrelated, then we're talking about 40% of 40%, which is 16%. Now it's more interesting because 1.6 million will, will make you 8.4. But when you compound the correlation benefits, we spent basically $700,000 for uh, a $10 million payout, which is a, a 9.3 million. And, and we successfully closed that trade at 7 million. So it's, it's about finding, you know, the, how you spend that premium. What is the best uh, trade off in a way that you want to minimize the amount of premium that gives you, you know, the, the longest uh, uh, coverage possible in terms of time in the most asymmetric way and the, and the most reliable way. And when you build a portfolio, you're going to have to find some trade-offs, you know, because what might be cheap and may not uh, <laughs> be reliable or, or what might be expensive may not be asymmetric enough or things bleed in different ways. So you, there's really a lot of science, but also a lot of art in how you become a portfolio. And that's the reason why uh, big investors, institutional investors tend to outsource to people like us the, the role of goalkeeper because it's actually... Uh, not very easy at all. <laughs> it requires a significant uh, uh, understanding, particularly from a risk management. And, and similar to the goalkeeper, is is not so is a bit ungrateful, no? In the sense that striker can miss in and score one as a hero, the goalkeeper uh, is under great scrutiny. Uh, we really have to do those saves, and that's really, in some ways, what we've tried to do. And, and Touchwood, we've been able to to deliver. Uh, big returns when when the team needed it, and that's something that you do not because you are just tactically bearish. I think to my point back on football, that's because it's structurally part of the game. So being able to defend the portfolio, you know, what's the whole point of having insurance? The whole point of having insurance is you want to buy a ton of distressed assets when uh, the crisis comes. And there's nothing better if you accumulate the cheap insurance, then you're going to be able to monetize it and buy those distressed assets. And guess what? When the market goes the other way and equity markets are super complacent and equity valuations are super high, you should be trimming that to accumulate artificially cheap insurance. And that's why our process is very contrarian. And you, instead of fighting volatility, which is what many investors do, they're like, oh my God, I cross my fingers that things stay calm because if volatility explodes, I'm dead. You cannot do that. You have to embrace volatility and basically enjoy this process of, I don't know what's happening. But whatever happens, my strikers will hopefully score, my goalkeeper will save, will pass the ball, and will win. So my role and our role as a goalkeeper and defender, it's, I think, going to be, it's always been important, but I think in the current paradigm, uh, it's going to be even more important. And, uh, and, and we're really excited uh, you know, about the potential for, for the asset class and, and, and how we can help investors. I was just about to ask a question and you answered it before I could ask. Active rebalancing is what you're describing. You believe these, the, this, uh, the strategy of options is also going to be very relevant for this new paradigm world of, of high inflation, high volatility and uh, high risk. No, absolutely, because uh, as, as the point I was making is, you know, uh, I, I use this word or this expression a lot, you know, uh, a crystal ball. I think some people think that investing is a game of, you know, uh, having a crystal ball, having the magic formula, I have the algorithm that knows exactly what's going to happen. And these guys are so smart. They have, you know, it doesn't work like that. 
<laughs> it's in fact the opposite of that. This is a game that is uh, it's about building the right team, having the right players, and, uh, and and you know defending like crazy and taking your chances to score goals and save and and and, and it's a competitive game. So any of us who've competed in sports uh, at one level or another understand you know the importance of of the team the importance of scoring goals the importance of defense the importance of of strategy and focus so uh, that is if if you've been playing the game in a paradigm where the referee was sort of raising the flag and whistling offside every time the other team passed midfield then uh, you know you look good without having any defenders or, go- or goalkeepers uh, but I think you've, this is an artificial setup and we're now in a situation where it's going to be a much more open game, much more volatile and where, you know, it's about the team, you know. So the fact that we were able to do very well in certain scenarios, you know, you're the hero. Sometimes when things work the other way, we do very badly and we are the, the bad guy. And I always say, you know, we're not, neither, you know, that's smart or that's stupid. This is just part of the team. It's part of your job. And you have to, you know, embrace that volatility because what matters ultimately is how the team performs. And, and, and that's why you as the, as the coach, you know, the, the listeners and the viewers, uh, they, uh, they're the coach of the team. They need to decide what sort of strategy do I want to run? What are the players I need in the pitch? How am I going to rebalance them? And that's why our strategies, you know, we have the goalkeeper. But we also have a protected equity, which basically combines a long-only equity with with uh, insurance, which actually is much easier for the average investor to buy because it removes a lot of the noise that you get from from having the two pieces separately. And more importantly, it automatically rebalances inside and takes advantage of this huge negative correlation of volatility events. So uh, these are just solutions that are effectively the alternative for investors to to just sit in on a, on a simple uh, ETF to, to try to have something that can help you embrace that volatility and, and add players to the team in a way that hopefully we get to win the match and the championship. <laughs> um, and if you will, Diego, just one last question, a quick one. Um, given this new paradigm, do you have, even without a crystal ball, obviously, because nobody has this, do you have an in- inkling of this sort of types of assets that might perform well still? I know you've talked about gold a lot, tips we've, we've uh, potentially talked about as well. Yeah, I think, uh, look, we can start with those who I think will do badly. And I think, uh, in, in a, you know, if you look at the strikers, it's really everything's down to inflation. And even if I have a strong view that inflation will be high, you know, there will be times when the market has the opposite view and, and who knows, maybe, maybe we're wrong and hopefully, you know, I'm wrong. I always dedicate my book. I hope you like it. I hope I'm wrong. Trust me. I, I feel like a doctor diagnosing a terrible disease to a friend, you know, uh, as a doctor, you want to be correct. As a friend, you, you want to be wrong. So in that sense, I think that in a high inflationary scenario, you want to favor equities versus credit because credit ultimately is positioned as a striker, but it will suffer from inflation. But even within the equities, you want to look for equities that have pricing power in the sense that, you know, they can control the input cost and they can pass on the the cost to the consumers. Uh, Those who can do that, you know, will actually be able to prevail. And, And if you're a baker and wheat is more expensive, but you can pass on the price of bread to your consumers, you're okay. 
if you're a baker where the price of bread is fixed and the price of wheat shoots above your selling price, you go bankrupt. Okay. So in that sense, you need to find for equities that effectively will be long inflation and benefit from inflation. I think on the midfield, clearly real assets, you know, better than, than cash or other sorts of uh, assets because real assets, in my opinion, have the potential to, to do well uh, through capital gains and in real terms, etc. And on the defense side, I think fixed income is tricky because obviously it's short inflation, as we discussed, but also in places like Europe, you know, the ability to defend with relatively low yields is limited. So I do like things like gold over the long term. I like volatility. I like insurance. Uh, I like uh, tips, you know, but always within the context of a team, right? You can't be arrogant enough to pretend that, you know, exactly what's going to happen or be too aggressive in your portfolio construction that you only have strikers or goalkeepers. It's equally bad, okay? If you go all in goalkeepers, then uh, it's not good. If you're all strikers, not good. It's about finding that balance that will embrace volatility and, and do it in a way that is consistent with the, the challenges from, from inflation. Because this, you need to start thinking in level two and level three of, of what, what this means. And so, yes, I tactically can see how some assets are going to be better uh, for the portfolio, for the team. But ultimately, this is all about, you know, uh, you as the coach deciding, you know, what do I want the team to do? How do I want it to perform? And then uh, choosing the right players and being able to, to rebalance. And some of those will be managed internally by yourself. Some others you may want to outsource. And, and I think, you know, stick to competence. You know, some people might have their own business. That, that's your striker. You know, why would you have high yield if you already have a, your own business, right? Uh, so I think in that sense, you want, you want to have um, a team that is, is balanced to, to your needs. Well, thank you, Diego. That's been uh, eye-opening and uh, really uh, interested in having your insight in the future. Because, uh, again, I'll remind people of that article that Diego wrote. Uh, he actually had a separate one on the frogs as well. It's uh, one of the best I've, I've seen in a, a long time. So very kind. definitely go see it. Diego, where, where can people find, what website can they go to to, to find your, your blog? Yeah, people can just go to my Twitter, uh, Parilla Diego, uh, P-A-R-R-I-L-L-A. Uh, if you go into my profile, people can uh, subscribe to the Anti-Bubbles Report, uh, which is free. Uh, it's, uh, I tend to send monthly. Um, and it's a long letter. A lot of the, the stuff is, you know, structural. So you, you, some of it is, is, is very, very much life in terms of what's happening in the, in the market. But a lot of it is also very structural. But yeah, uh, Twitter is good. Um, you know, people can reach out directly, follow, follow through that. And people that might have interest in, in exploring cooperation further through uh, investment, then, then also can, can feel free to reach out. And um, I look forward to I hope the discussion was helpful. I, I, I think we all need uh, in this new paradigm, uh, you know, to, to understand the, the dynamics. It's going to be ever more important. And if, if we can be of assistance in, in that process, you know, that'd be great. So thank you for, for the opportunity. I had a great job with the program and the series, and I look forward to assisting you and, and, and your clients in any way we can. Thanks, Diego. Have a good day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. 
We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.